So we're a few weeks into the story of how this movement of Jesus, a movement we call the church, has become a worldwide movement and is still captivating and including people today. So as we begin, I want to take just a little bit of time and kind of recap where we have come from in the story so far. So in Acts chapter 1, we saw that there was a moment that changed history. We all know that Jesus could be considered the most remarkable of people, great prophet, great teacher, but there was one thing in particular that set him apart from everybody else in history, and that is the fact that he died, and three days later, he came back to life. Now, clearly, that is a kind of sensational story, and it became the story that was anchored in this historical moment that helped this movement become a viral movement as it was told that someone who was dead came back to life. And the truth is, the 12 people, the 12 leaders that Jesus chose to be his launch team, they were only qualified to do that work of launching the church because of the fact that they were witnesses of Jesus after he had been resurrected. So then we come to Acts chapter 2, and we see that in Acts chapter 2, we saw that God completely changes the way that he interacts with people. In times past, he would send prophets or angels or burning bushes, and he would communicate his message to people. And then at one point, God said, I'm going to come and I'm going to be close to my people. He's, he built tabernacles and temples where he could live, where he was close to the people who were following him. And then God said, I'm going to reveal myself in an even more personal way. I'm going to come in person, in the flesh. And so God comes down to us in the person of Jesus and lives here on this planet, side by side, shoulder to shoulder with us for 30 years until Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 2, that is when God says, I'm not going to just live with you. I'm going to live in you through the power of the Holy Spirit. So then, yes, last week, Darren, through Acts chapter 3 and some other passages in the book of Acts, talked about how this movement was something that was, was, it was it had a revolutionary inclusiveness in it. That this, this movement that had, that had started as a, a small ethnic group of Jewish people had now become something that was worldwide and proclaimed that everyone is invited and anyone can join. So as we come to Acts chapter 4 today, we're going to be looking at a very remarkable characteristic, a trait of the followers of Jesus that added to this magnetic quality of the church that continued the momentum of the church going viral. And it was the fact that there was a radical generosity that, that actually created a life-changing community that kept the fire of Jesus' movement burning in a white-hot way. So in Luke's story, we're counting the life of this movement in weeks, not in years. And it has literally grown exponentially. So momentum is building. People are hearing from the teaching of the disciples, the story of the resurrection of Jesus and are choosing to follow him. So in Acts chapter 4, verse 4, it says, 
But many of the people who heard their message, that's the message of the disciples, believed it. So the number of men who believed now totaled about 5,000. You probably remember that just a couple of chapters back, we talked about how this group of only 120 people was gathering, waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then on the day of Pentecost, the church explodes from 120 people to 3,000 people. And now, just weeks later, the church has grown to about 5,000 people. Now, it's important, I think, to remember and to note this one thing. When we talk about these people becoming followers of Jesus, followers of Jesus is not like when we think of followers on social media, where you click an icon and you become part of a group. These people who were choosing to become followers of Jesus were making a life-changing decision that, that literally meant they were going to give up everything and start their life all over again. This is no small decision. And so you, you wonder, what is it? What is it that is attracting so many people so quickly to this movement that Jesus has started? And when you look at Acts chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, we see the story of two of his disciples as they have been teaching and continue to teach about Jesus and his resurrection. It says, While Peter and John were speaking to the people, they were confronted by the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and some of the Sadducees. These leaders were very disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the people that through Jesus, there is a resurrection of the dead. Now, I'd like to, if I could, just add two little words to that so that there's just great clarity. And that is that they were teaching people that through Jesus, there is resurrection of the dead for you. Because, you see, this is kind of the secret sauce now that's a part of this movement is that they're not only talking about the fact that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. They're actually saying because of Jesus' resurrection, you also will be resurrected. This is not something that just happened to our leader. This is something that is a part of every single follower of Jesus and their life. So it's probably, I think, hard to overestimate and overstate the wildly humble manner in which Jesus sets up his mission when you look especially at these people who are his messengers. I mean, there, there are no rich financial backers. There are no like powerful people of influence who are behind this thing. There's no finesse. There's no smooth campaign and market research and focus groups. It really is just this fascination with a story about this man who died on a cross and was resurrected. Listen to the description from Acts chapter 4. It says, the members of the council. Now remember, these are, this is the Jewish council. And they were jealous of the fact that Jesus and his followers were sort of outshining them as a new movement and a new religion. They were amazed, though, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. You couldn't have a more nondescript group of people doing this work. Ordinary men, no special training. So from a personnel perspective, this is about the the, the least exciting it could possibly be. 
But what people do recognize is we know that these people were with Jesus. We know that they had been with him. They were first-hand witnesses of everything that Jesus had done, including his resurrection. So what you're seeing here as these disciples are teaching is you kind of see the coming together or this, this synergy of all the things that we have named as what makes this movement work. These guys, their story is the story of the resurrection. And they're saying, not only did Jesus resurrect, but you will too. And like in Acts chapter 2, they are operating under the, the power of the Holy Spirit. And like Acts chapter 3 and the other areas that Darren talked about, like this is a radically inclusive kind of thing. Like it's open to anyone and everyone. And I don't want to discount any one of those things and the importance of how they impacted this movement and how it caused this church to go viral. But there's something else that was significant in why this movement was so far-reaching and life-changing. Look in Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 32. It says this. All the believers were united in heart and mind. And they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. There were no needy people among them, because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. So you begin to see the, the radical generosity that was growing in this community of people. You see, one life-changing effect that Jesus has on people when you encounter him is he changes how we see and understand stuff. And it says that they felt like what they owned was not their own. So from a, from a Bible perspective, this really isn't a new teaching. And for Jewish people, they would have known from long ago, Psalm 24, verse 1 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. But what's different now is it wasn't just a teaching. This was something that they were actually beginning to live. And the life-changing encounter with Jesus changes how you see things. So after that encounter, now they see their stuff as not their own stuff, but a tool to help other people. And as Luke describes their lives, he uses one phrase that really I consider stunning. He says, there were no needy people among them. Now, honestly, I don't think that's an exaggeration. But even if it is, even if that's an exaggeration, what if there was such radical generosity being generated in this group and it was practiced in such a way that that was really the only way that you could describe what it was like to live in this community of people? I mean, that's the kind of thing that truly inspires me. When I see that on the pages of the Bible, I think, yeah, now that's the kind of place I think Jesus envisioned when he first started this thing called the church. Now, not to kill the joy and the spirit of all the goodness happening in this moment when people are, are sharing in such a radically generous way, but I think this needs a little bit of context, especially 
for us today. Just some context to help us have the right perspective. We, I think we live in such an affluent culture that it's almost normal for us to lose perspective on what things are real needs and what things are wants. And to be clear, I'm just going to say it's not my place to tell you what are needs or wants for you, but neither am I going to hesitate to push us to think through that because I know in my own life I've had to think through that more than once. So personally, I, I have this, this visual thing that is sort of embedded in my mind that helps me to have a little bit of perspective on what things are needs. When we lived in the country of Haiti, there, were, there, there was this little band of boys, and every day they would come to our gate at our house and they would ask for food. So every day as I was, I was walking down the street from the school where I was teaching until I got to my house, this little band of boys would be standing there on the street, and when they saw me, they would run ahead and they would stand there and wait at the side gate of our house so that when I came in, Kind of in unison, this little group of five would say, Mr. Scott, Mr. Scott, do you have some bread, something that we can eat? I would go in, I would check the cupboard, the pantry to see what it was and give them whatever it was that we had to eat. But I got to say that that daily experience has given me a lifetime reminder that helps me to see the difference between what I need and what I want because seeing hungry kids asking for food every single day can do that to you. And it made me more grateful. And it made me see with much more clarity what things are needs compared to wants. So Luke, he gets very specific now in the story as he's talking about this radical generosity that's that's happening. And he starts telling the story with real names of real people. Acts 4.36, as he's talking about the generosity, he says, for instance... There was Joseph, one of the apostles, one, the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi, and he came from the island of Cyprus. He sold a field he owned, and he brought the money to the apostles. A real-life guy sells his property, brings the money to the apostles so that it could help take care of the people who had needs. And this, this is the thing that made this community of Jesus' followers attractive and compelling because people like Barnabas were selling property to take care of other people. I mean, who wouldn't want to be a part of a community that was full of people like Barnabas? And people were saying, and and who wouldn't want to be like Barnabas? And you know, that, that might sort of create a question for us and make us wonder, like, why doesn't that happen today? Well, it's not a bad question, but here's what I know. Today, if someone is extremely generous and they give in a very sacrificial way, their name is not going to be published in the book of Acts, first of all. And secondly, those people rarely are the kind of people who stand up and make a proclamation that, hey, I sold a little chunk of my 401k and gave it to some people who needed it. Because what I see most often in the lives of people who want to be radically generous is the fact that there's a very quiet and unassuming nature to giving when it comes from a place of true generosity. So 
In the story, we come next to another group of people, another couple that also are giving money. And here's what it says in Acts chapter 5. It says, but, and whenever we've been having some really good things happening with all this community and generosity, and then you hear the word, but, you know that it's not going to be good news coming. It says, but there was a certain man named Ananias who, with his wife, Sapphira, sold some property. He brought part of the money to the apostles, claiming it was the full amount. With his wife's consent, normally a very good idea, he kept the rest. Now, at first blush, when you look at this story, this is the same story of what happened with Barnabas, except for one clear thing. They also had taken their property and sold it, brought it to the apostles so that it could be used to help other people. But what was different was the reason that they gave. You don't really have to read between the lines very much to see that Ananias and Sapphira gave because they wanted to impress people with how generous they were. So much so that they lied. They told people that they had given the entire amount. Now, what's interesting is Peter's response. One of Jesus' disciples talking to this couple, and here's what he says in Acts 5, 4. He says, the property was yours to sell or not sell as you wished. And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away or not give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. Peter states the obvious. You didn't have to sell it. And when you did, you didn't have any obligation to give that money to anyone. You could have done whatever you wanted with that money except attempt to fool God. So by the end of the story, Ananias and Sapphira have fallen dead because they have lied to God. But here's, I think, the takeaway. When you look at the contrast between these two people who have been givers, you're going to see something that is an absolute and important thing about understanding generosity, and that's this. Generosity always leads to giving, but giving does not always come from a place of generosity. I want to run that by again. Generosity always leads to giving, but giving does not always come from a place of generosity. You see, the why of giving is at the very core more than the amount, more than who the money goes to, the most important thing is the motive behind the gift. And it's one of the reasons that we focus so much here at Westridge on why people give. Because if the why is not right, nothing is right. So I have a friend in my small group, Alan, and uh, he was telling a story to our group uh, last week, and I asked him if I could share it with you, and he said yes. And he, he talked about his pre-Westridge life, and he said that he had become so unhappy, so disillusioned with church that he wanted nothing to do with it. I mean, church, church was of no interest to him whatsoever. But the person that he began dating invited him to Westridge, and sort of as an agreement, he reluctantly agreed to come to Westridge. And he said, you know, when I came, he said, 
I couldn't believe it, that we could actually bring a coffee into the service. And we, we got to sit at these little bistro tables. And, and we get to listen to that kind of music. He said, he said Westridge is kind of like Christian cool to me. But he said the moment that he knew, the moment that he knew it was really different was at offering time when he heard, if you're not at a place where you want to give, just let that offering bag pass you by. So Alan begins seeing church a little bit differently. He says, well, okay, now it's a maybe. Maybe there's a chance. And I'm not so sure how cool we are, but I do believe that when Jesus started this thing called church, he fully expected that people would walk in and say, yeah, yeah, this is the kind of community that I would like to be a part of. So let me talk about the offering thing here just for a minute. Because when you come to Westridge, almost every single week you hear some of the same language when you hear us say things like we deeply believe that giving comes from a place of gratitude. Or when we say giving is in response to experiencing the radical love and grace of God. And when you've experienced it, you come to a place where you choose and want to give. Or that giving is not an obligation, it's not a duty, it's not something that is done from a place of guilt. It's said in numerous ways, but there's one clear message, and that is why you give is the absolute most important part of giving. Now, someone sort of skeptical might say, you sure that isn't kind of a reverse psychology thing you guys got going on there? And I get it, but here's the thing. No one at Westridge invented that idea. No one came up with the reverse psychology plan because the idea literally comes straight from the Bible. We haven't even paraphrased it. It's exactly what you see in the Bible, like you see in a place such as the prophet Isaiah's words. Now, in the days of the prophets, the prophets would many times have dialogues with God, and then they would record that dialogue, and then they would share it with the people so they could hear God's message to them. So both sides of this conversation were usually brutally honest, things that the prophet would say and even things that God would say. So as I read these words, I want you to understand this is what God is saying in a brutally honest way to the people worshiping him then. He says, what makes you think I want all your sacrifices, says the Lord? And by sacrifices, in those days, instead of money in an offering plate, they would bring bulls and rams and goats and lambs and things that they would give as a gift to God. He says, I'm sick of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened cattle. I get no pleasure from the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to worship me, who asked you to parade through my courts with all your ceremony? Stop bringing me your meaningless gifts. Couldn't really be more clear than that. If it if it isn't a meaningful gift and something that you choose and want to give because you have understood God's incredible love and grace and you are now responding and saying, I have a kind of gratitude that says I've got to do something, don't, don't put your gift in the offering plate. So just for a minute, let's come back to this very extraordinary community of people. This community of people that is marked by generosity. As a matter of fact, 
Generosity was the rule, not the exception, in this community in Acts. Radical generosity was ways that everyone described them because it was obvious from people like Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira and many others who would do whatever it took to take care of the people in the community. And every week, more and more people were joining, and they became a group of people clearly known for the way that they loved one another. So the prophet Isaiah, he describes the lifestyle that these people had taken on. In Isaiah 117, when he says, learn to do good, commit yourselves to seeking justice. Make things right for the world's most vulnerable, the oppressed, the orphaned, the widow. And the cool thing is, as Luke tells his story, he describes what happened because of that radically generous lifestyle that they lived. Here's what he says. Yet more and more people believed and were brought to the Lord, crowds of both men and women. And I say to us at Westridge, let's be like those people.